I don't know. I don't know. I, I know there was a glorious night in which we covered two. <laughs> Psalm 42 and 43 uh, were one. But we may have, I think that brush pride. I think we spent two on 22. So this class is, is so epic that it creates its own history. We have a history book written on this class. Which Psalms did we cover? Did we cover two in a night? Which time did it take us to? Uh, but, you know, I appreciate your interest in being back here continually as we seek to cover this. As I wrote on the board, I, I think with Psalm 68, uh, which we talked about last week, some of its difficulties, um, when you find difficulty in a passage like this, Go back to what it teaches us about God, particularly in the Psalms. What does it teach us about God? God is a mighty warrior who defeats his foes. God is a compassionate father who cares for the forgotten. And God is a holy and awesome God whose presence shakes the earth. I would encourage you to read through the Psalm and, and to fill out verses that go with those themes. I've got several written down. But I would suggest that in stating these are themes and these are truths about God in this psalm, that does not mean that these three are equally divided. There is more stress on this idea of God as a holy, mighty warrior who defeats his foes. That is the most prominent of those three themes. We'll see verses tonight that we can add to that discussion. Uh, we will see how that fits into the overall message, Lord, Lord willing, of the psalm. <clears throat> but let's start with verse 19. We left off last time, right before that, with 18. But in 19 and 20, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens. That bears our burden. The God who is our salvation, Salah. God is to us a God of deliverances. And to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Now, just looking at that verse first of all, and I recognize this is somewhat of an artificial category. Uh, these, are my, these are my words. But which of these categories to verses 19 and 20 fall under? Probably the first one. The first one? The first one and the second one. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking more these verses, just these verses. Now, the right before it, I'd say the first one. But I think of it more as God's care. God daily bears our burden. Uh, he is our salvation he is a God of deliverances and a God of escapes. It's, it, to me, if it's, why, why would you say the first one, David? Well, I guess the deliverance, I'm thinking of deliverance from foes. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. We, we, uh, 
Um, I, I can see there may be a strong rebuke coming for somebody on the front row tonight. But anyway, but nonetheless, God is all sufficient. God meets our needs. Uh, he is all sufficient. He meets our needs. He bears our burdens. We've seen this kind of idea in the Psalms previously. In Psalm 55, verse 22. 55 verse 22 cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you he will never allow the righteous to be shaken so 55 22 stated the same thing cast your burden upon the Lord he will sustain you also in 1 Peter 5 and verse 7 the Bible tells us Cast your care upon Him because He cares for you. Cast your care upon Him. And here, the Lord daily bears our burdens. He daily bears our burdens. Now, let me also mention a passage. Encourage you to turn with me to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46 says something interesting along this line. Isaiah 46. Now, the first seven verses are worthy of our attention. We're just going to pick out a few highlights here. I would beg you to go back and read these because I think that you will be profited by them. But in verse 1, Bel has bowed down, Nebo stoops over. These are the names of Babylonian gods, Bel and Nebo. They stoop down, they stoop over, they bow down. Their images are consigned to the beast and to the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. The point, these idols are pictured as being defeated. Their people are defeated in battle. And these gods, Bel and Nebo, have to be carried away into captivity. They have to be carried. But when we get to verse 3, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth, you who have been carried from the womb. God is pictured as carrying his people. In the pagan world, the people are pictured as carrying their gods. It's a contrast being made. A contrast between people who carry their gods and the God who carries his people. And here in Isaiah 68, not all the same vocabulary, but it's the same idea. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden. The God who is our salvation. Now notice in verse 20 that the term deliverances, at least this is true in the New American Standard, and this is true in the original. That the term deliverances and the term escapes are plural. They are plural. God is a God of deliverances. I um, quoted this uh, recently that some of you may have seen 
um, Derek Kidner made this statement about death. Death is a domain with many entrances and no exits. Now think about that. There are many ways to die. But there's no way out. But God is a God of deliverances and to Him belong escapes from death. Now, you might can think of the greatest way that that is fulfilled and have a comment for later. But here I think the idea is that God delivers His people from almost certain death. This is a kind of battlefield picture from that standpoint that uh, David mentioned. It is kind of a battlefield setting because He provides escapes. He provides deliverances. Now, let me read verses 21 through 23 and ask you which category you think they fit with. 21, surely God will shatter the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who goes on in his guilty deeds. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may shatter them in blood. The tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies. What do you think, which do you think this would fit? Mighty warrior. <laughs> okay. Mighty warrior. Sure, it's not compassionate. <laughs> but yes, it is a mighty warrior. And the language here is more direct and more graphic than it is anywhere else in the Psalms or anywhere else in this Psalm. God will strike the head of his enemies. The hairy crown of him who goes on in his deeds. God is pictured as grabbing the long hair of his enemy and and killing him. And it does seem to be the case sometimes in the ancient Near East, and, and I'm forgetting some of the passages that dealt with this, but, but it does seem like that just like Israel had a Nazarite vow where sometimes people wore their hair long for, uh, for certain purposes of commitment to gods. The other nations may have had some things like that for their warriors who were often uh, pictured as long-haired. And I'm trying to remember the references and they're not coming to me. But it's like God is grabbing their hair. God is shattering their head. And the reason that he does this in, at the end of verse 21 is because they go on in their guilty deeds. They go on in their guilty deeds. It is a judgment for sin. In verse 22, the Lord says, I will bring them back. Back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. It says he's going to bring them back. But but you notice that, or at least in the New American Standard, the word them is in italics. It doesn't indicate who he's bringing back. I will bring back. I will bring back. But, but who is he bringing back? Is he bringing back his people as captives and protecting them? Or is he telling the, the wicked that you will not escape punishment? Wherever you go, wherever you hide, if you go to Bashan, if you go to the depths of the sea, I'm going to bring you back. 
In verse 21, in verse 23, there are statements there about judgment. So it seems to me most logical that he is saying in verse 22 that if you go here to hide from me, if you try to uh, hide from my presence, I will bring you back. I will capture you and I will bring you back. And he says... Your foot may shatter them in blood. And the tongue of the dogs have its portion from your enemies. And when you think about the dogs and the blood of the enemy, who do you particularly think of in the biblical story? Jezebel. Jezebel. Uh, it's prophesied in 1 Kings 21. It is fulfilled at the end of 2 Kings 9. 2 Kings 9 35 through 37. It's fulfilled at the end of that section. Uh, but uh, the dogs lick up the blood. Now, overall, this is a very graphic picture. God shatters the wicked's head. The, the people of God are, are, are washing their feet in the blood, and the dogs are wick, licking up the blood. But this is stated, it is because of sin. Now I ran across this statement in a one volume commentary that sums up things on the Psalms very quickly. But I thought this was a pretty powerful statement. Is this picture too bold? Is this picture too graphic? He wrote this. We suffer from moral atrophy. We have so little capacity for true moral indignation. We are ever, ever ready for moral compromise and therefore we have no conception of what sin really is, how it appears, and how it offends a holy God. And how even the most apparent savage retribution is completely legitimate. I, I think he does a good job of conveying maybe, maybe we wrestle with pictures of the judgment of the wicked. Because we don't begin to grasp how horrible sin is. And we've all been affected by it. Because we know we've all compromised with it. And we've all done the wrong thing. And so therefore it's hard for us when we see someone else who does the same thing or does the same thing in principle that we've done. To see how horrible and devastating it is. But the Lord is a mighty warrior who will shatter the heads of the enemy and the righteous will wash their feet in the blood of the wicked. Anytime you have a question or an idea, feel free to express it. Um... In verse 24 through 27, 
it is as there is a procession to God's house, to God's temple. And the text says, They have seen your procession, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went on, the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines. Bless God in the congregations. Even the Lord, you who are the fountain of Israel. There is Benjamin, the youngest, ruling them. The princes of Judah in their throng. The princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. But there's a procession often after a great military victory. The king comes back and there is a great, we might say today, a parade. They might call it a procession. As he goes back in procession, there are people waiting there to shout the victory. People, particularly in verse 11, the women were pictured as shouting the news of the great victory. Here in verse uh, 25, the maidens are beating tambourines. So they are shouting. They are celebrating. They are praising the warriors. You have that. You have musicians and singers playing and singing and celebrating this victory. You had in verse 18 a host of captives being carried uh, into uh, captivity. These are the prisoners you've defeated. These are the mighty ones you've vanquished. And they're all praising God. They're praising the king. And you see all the tribes present. Now four in verse 27 are mentioned specifically. Benjamin and Judah, Zebulun and Naphtali. Two from the southern tribes, two from the northern tribes uh, are pictured in this particular passage. Um, Even in this respect, and there are several ways in which this song Uh, ties with Judges 5 but Judges 5 kind of has a roll call of the tribes like this uh, similar to what we find here. Now I don't know that this fits into any of these categories. I'm not giving to you this as the final word on Psalm uh, 68 you may find more categories or or, or different ways to word things uh, but this is a way to help us with some of the main themes but but what thoughts do you have there in verses uh, in verses um, 24 through 27 yeah I hadn't thought of that as like a victory parade. But yeah, that does seem to fit. Yes. With the, you know, what just preceded that. Yes. And even perhaps the language of God in verse 24 as my God, my king, may fit that. Um, this is the first time in the psalm God has specifically been called king even though there have been a lot of things that hint at that kind of role. But remember one of the things the people said in 1 Samuel 8 when they wanted Saul to be their king. They wanted someone to fight their battles for them. And, and so one of the things a king did is a king fought in their battle. So there is a little bit of that picture of God as a mighty warrior 
there in verse 24. And the idea is he has vanquished his foes. So, so maybe it fits that category better than it fits any of those categories. Uh, but, but this is a victory parade, a victory celebration. The foes have been vanquished. And now in verse 28, your God has commanded your strength. Show yourself strong, O God who have acted on our behalf. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Rebuke the beast in the reeds, the herd of the bulls with the calves of the people, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. He has scattered the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly, quickly stretch out her hands to God. Now, it, it, it associates God with strength in verse 28. Your God has commanded your strength. Show yourself strong. What, what would you say is going on in these verses? Seeing God go into the sanctuary in verse 24. Um which seems to be mentioned in verse 29. Go into your temple. What, what, what is going on? Well, in verse 31, it's like this has spread to, you know, the far reaches of the earth, you know, and, you know, Egypt, Ethiopia, they're, they're coming. They've heard of this great and awesome God. Okay, very good. They've heard of the greatness of God and they are um, coming, like it says of Ethiopia in verse 31, they're stretching out their hands to God. But it, it seems like all these peoples and nations are bearing tribute to God and surrendering to God's uh, power. What in the text indicates that it may not be willingly? That it may be that they've been beat into submission? Rebuke the beasts of the reeds. Yeah, in verse 30. Verse, yeah, verse 30 particularly. Rebuke the beast in the reeds and the herd of the bulls and the calves. So you have the beast in the reeds and the herd of the bulls that need to be rebuked. So apparently this God is winning this peace and making these nations subject by whipping these foes into shape, by, by, triumph, by being triumphant over them militarily. Rebuke the beast in the reeds. Now, when you think of the reeds, biblically, what do you think of? Uh, what group of people do you think of and associate with reeds? Egypt. Egypt. Remember the statement the king of Assyria mocks and says about the king of Egypt? He's a bruised reed, and if you lean on it, he'll pierce your hand. That's said in 2 Kings uh, 18 and 19 and in Isaiah 36. And do you know that's right? 
I mean, I know that's right. That's an uninspired speaker, but he's speaking truth. And you know the reason that I know it's truth is because Ezekiel 29 uses the same picture. It talks about Egypt as a bruised reed, which if you lean on will pierce your hand. I think it's around verses 6 and 7 of Ezekiel 29. But, but in Ezekiel 32, look over with me there. Ezekiel 32. Now, in our daily Bible reading, and know we, we're forced to look at these particular passages. Ezekiel, 20, Ezekiel 25 through 32 is judgment on the nations. The nation that Ezekiel spends the most time with is Egypt. And he deals with Egypt in chapters 29 through 32. But look at Ezekiel 32, verse 2. Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, you compared yourself to a young lion of the nations. You're like a monster in the seas. You burst forth in the rivers and muddied the waters with your feet and fouled their rivers. So Egypt is compared to a monster in the sea. It seems reasonable that the beast in the reeds may be a figurative reference, much like Ezekiel uh, 32.2, to this monster that lies in the sea of Egypt. But if you want something, if you say, well, you know, I understand that, and I understand it's all one book, but can you find anything closer in the Psalms? Well, yes, we can. Uh, look at Psalm 74. Psalm 74. In Psalm 74, verse 12, Yet God is my King from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your, great, by your strength. You divided the sea by your strength. Can you think of any time God divided the sea by his strength? Okay. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. Who is Leviathan. <clears throat> Who is Leviathan? Christy, what do you know about Leviathan? Sea monster. Okay, where would you go to prove that? My footnote. Footnote? Footnote, okay. I was thinking that you may have been looking at... Um, I don't know if you've gotten this far, but Isaiah 27, verse 1, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. So the term Leviathan is used to refer to the dragon who lives in the sea. He is a fleeing serpent. He is the twisted serpent. But it is a figurative description of Egypt as a sea monster. Uh, We symbolize nations 
sometimes by creatures as well, don't we? An eagle, a symbol of America. A bear, I don't know, it used to be. I don't know, it still is a symbol of Russia. But we use those kind of symbols. Do you think that that world was devoid of that kind of thing? You know, they did that kind of thing too. And Egypt is a sea monster in the midst of the sea that God shatters. So, we're spending a lot of time, but going back to Psalm 68, in the context of verses 28 through 31, it may be that these nations are beaten into submission. God is a mighty warrior who defeats his foes. He's a mighty warrior who defeats his foes, who beats all of them into submission. But at the end, they will come from these faraway places, like Egypt and Ethiopia, bringing their tribute to God. In verse 29, they bring gifts to you. In verse 31... They will come out of Egypt. They will quickly stretch out their hands to go. They are bringing tribute. They are begging for mercy. In verse 32. Yes. Revelation, there's a sea beast that is prominent. Especially in the latter half of the book. Glad you said that. Um... I do think a background for that beast from the sea and and beast from the land in Revelation are Leviathan and things of the Old Testament prophets. It's the same, same kind of picture and they all fit together there. What amazes me about the Bible is how many different points you can start and connect its story. You, you, you can at so many different points in so many different ways. And Leviathan, in a way, ties back, it, it goes back to Genesis 3, in a sense, and the serpent in the wilderness, serpent in the, in the, in the garden. And so, uh, and that doesn't mean the serpent in the garden was a, was the Loch Ness monster kind of thing, but it, it, I'm just saying that all that pictures tied together. Um, okay, verse 32 and 35. In summary of all that has been said, sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth, sing praises to the Lord, Salah, to him who rides upon the highest heavens which are from ancient times. Behold, he speaks forth with, a vo- with his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel. His strength is in the skies. O God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. So, verse 32, sing to God, O kingdoms. Sing praises to God. All creation is called to worship and celebrate this God who has 
defeated his opponents and all the world who hasn't been defeated, they need to have the sense to recognize that resistance is futile and they must bow before him. Sing to God, O all O kingdoms of the earth, sing praises to Him. God who rides upon the highest heavens. As we stated last week, uh, a similar kind of description is given of God in verse 4. In verse 4, God who rides through the desert. Some of your versions have who rides upon the clouds. But uh, Baal in the ancient Near East, B-A-A-L, was viewed as riding upon the clouds. Here it is Yahweh who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times. He speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel. His strength is in the skies. Notice how frequently after verse 28 you see these terms strong and strength applied to the Lord. Uh, God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to his people. God's incredible strength Uh, is what his people need. They ask him in verse 28, show yourself strong. And they recognize in verse 35 that any bit of strength and power they have is from him. If they are victorious in battle, it is God's doing. It is not theirs. God deserves all the praise and all the honor. Now... Um, what questions first of all in the context of the psalm do you all have before we seek to tie it with biblical other bigger themes any questions in context I'm saying about verse 29 with the king's bringing gifts connecting that back with verse 18 with them bringing gifts um, to the Lord. Yes, yes. Verse 18, verse 29. uh, The victorious king is bringing back tribute and gifts from the people he has conquered. Yes. Okay. If, If no more questions there, and I know there's a lot more there than that we've touched upon or answered, but I hope something we've said will just help you to, to feel comfortable reading through that psalm and understanding some of the messages. By the way, we didn't mention any specific verses tonight that talks about how God is awesome and His presence is awesome. Or maybe we did and just didn't call attention to it. But you particularly see that theme in verse 8 when God's presence appeared on Mount Sinai. We saw the the violent shaking of the mountain at that. Um, In verses 15 through 18, how all the mountains envy Mount Zion because it is the dwelling place of God. And all the pictures, all the mountains, though much higher, though much more powerful and impressive, are viewed as looking with envy upon Mount Sinai. But how does Jesus fulfill Psalm 68? How does he? 
what are some ways that he does? Scriptures talk about him coming in the clouds, and you know, we just noted about you know he rides through okay. the deserts or on the clouds. You know, verse four. Yes. And, okay. Uh, verse thirty-three. Okay. Good point. Um, he rides the clouds. You see that. Particularly, you think of, I think of Revelation 1-7, he comes on clouds, every eye shall see him. But you also see a little of that in the Old Testament too. Um, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, the Son of Man coming in clouds, the Ancient of Days. Son of Man coming on the clouds, the Ancient of Days. In the Old Testament, with God being the one who rides on the clouds, what does that tell you right there about the identity of this one, this son of man, or one like the son of man who would come riding on clouds the ancient of days? He's more than just a man. He's more than just one like a son of man. But he is God come to flesh. I was thinking of you know, Acts 1.11. Okay. When, Behold, you know, he comes. He yeah, he will and come. And there were uh, two men in white clothing yeah. stood by the apostles and you know, you men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Yeah. If someone tells me that they believe uh, every coming of the Lord was fulfilled by 70 AD, that's one of the passages I like to go to. You know, that's one that I have found they're not necessarily prepared to answer. It happens so quickly, sometimes we forget that's a statement of the second coming. And uh, but but that is a good passage. Another passage I, that that is very strong in that respect is is the passage in John twenty one where it says that it was not said that he would not die until Jesus comes, but if he tarries till I come, what is that to you? If John's written after 70 A.D., there's no other conclusion you could come to, but it, this is trying to say, you know, this disciple is not going to live till Jesus comes, but it's not saying that definitively, but if I do this. So it's obviously a coming of the Lord that is described in that passage. I'm sorry if I if I got off a little bit. But but what else, Isaiah? Verse 21. Uh, okay. God's going to crush the heads of his enemies. You've got Genesis 3 with the prophecy of the heel in the head. Okay. Um, and Jesus obviously is the final head crusher. Okay. Shatter the heads of the enemy and Genesis 3.15. Very good. Genesis 3.15. Um, and remember the God of peace is going to crush Satan under his feet shortly. Romans 16 verse 20. doesn't mention the head specifically, but, but that is a good connection there. 
Um, another thing I think of, and I recognize this is making a lot over one word, but when you're 6811, 6811, the text says that the Lord gives the word or the command, the women proclaim the tidings, our hopes. Now, the word that's used, it, it says good tidings, and good is in italics in the New American Standard, but the word that's used in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, uses the word for gospel. Word for gospel. Gospel is good news. And so here these women are proclaiming the good news that the king has been triumphant and shattered his foes. And of course we know the ultimate good news. The ultimate good news is the resurrection. It is the ultimate good news. And as we stated before in verse 20, 19 and 20, God is a God of deliverances. And to the God the Lord belong escapes from death. Deliverances and escapes are plural. God delivers His people from certain death upon the field of battle. The quote we had from Kidner, there are many ways to enter death. There are no ways to exit. But God provides the exit for death in the resurrection of Jesus. He provides an exit. He provides a way out of that domain for which there are many entrances and no exits. And also, um, the psalm paints a picture. For example, in 68, 1-3, 68, 1 through 3, the Lord arises, the wicked vanish like smoke, the wicked melt like wax before the fire, and the righteous rejoice. The Lord arises, it spells judgment on the wicked, judgment on the wicked, and salvation to the righteous. That is exactly what happens in the second coming of Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, in verses 5 through 10, that the Lord will come back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But He will be glorified among those who believe. Mary? Uh, verse 5. The fatherless and the widows are not always technically fatherless and widows. Uh, in, in the Gospels, when Jesus is reaching out to tax collectors and sinners or healing the blind and the lame, he is reaching out to the weakest and most broken in society. So, so yes, I think that's a good point that Jesus, Jesus caring, D 
demonstrates this love of God displayed here in caring for the weakest and the most broken. Uh, that's the point, I think, in Matthew 12, uh, 15 through 21, of that long quote from Isaiah uh, 42, where the servant of the Lord doesn't put out the dim light of faith in those who are weak. Very, very good thought. Jesus epitomizes that. I would also say, think when you're reading things like this of places. David mentioned earlier when you talk about Egypt and Ethiopia, and I think this is part of the picture, that they represent the far reaches of the earth coming under the submission of the God who reigns from His temple in Jerusalem. But Ethiopia, as a man has come to Jerusalem to worship from that area, and that man is reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and the Bible tells us that Philip is told, go up and join that chariot. As he joins that chariot, he reads him, hears him reading Isaiah 53, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how could I unless someone guides me? He invites him, he begs him to come up and sit in the chariot. And he begins from that scripture and preaches to him about Jesus. And this man, from the far reaches of the earth, is stretching out his hand to God. Just like this passage talks about. So he fulfills that. Verse 22. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. Yeah. You've got Bashan to the east. Yes. You've got the sea on the west. Yes. It is also it's a mirrorism in a couple of ways. Bashan the east, sea on the west. Bashan um, mentioned as a mountain in verse 15. The sea, the depths. So uh, a ways to talk about God bringing back people from the furthest uh, ends in that particular passage. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, and this is the only time Psalm 68 is directly quoted in the New Testament. But Psalm 68 is quoted in the New Testament in Ephesians 4. And so let me invite you to turn your Bibles there to Ephesians 4. Really, it can start in verse 7 all the way through verse 16. Ephesians 4 verse 7. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... Now, notice that introduction. Therefore it says. This is the only time in the book 
of Ephesians that you find the Old Testament quoted with some kind of introduction. It says, it's not even says, thus says the scripture, but this quote's kind of introduced with the fact that this has been written before. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. After it says, it says, it refers to Psalm 68 and verse 18. Okay? Now, what is a little different about that quotation than how it appears in Psalm 68? Giving of gifts. Okay. In in Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen, you ascended on high, you led captive your captives, you have received gifts among men. So in Psalm sixty-eight, it talks about he received gifts. He received gifts. In Psalm, in Ephesians 4, when it quotes this passage, he led captive a host of captives and he gave you. He gave you. Now, let's see if we can figure this out in a moment. Let's keep reading. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended. In Psalm 68, I think it's some kind of procession to the temple. He ascended on high, he ascends to the temple. But he says, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Christ couldn't ascend if he hadn't descended to the earth. For he who descended is himself, he also who he who ascended far above all the heavens, so he might fill all things. And then he mentions the gifts that he gave. In verse 11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. So the gifts that he gives are these people. Hmm. Now, before we try to work out everything in that passage, or maybe instead of, I want you to see though how well Ephesians 4 fits with the overall theme of Psalm 68. The overall theme of Psalm 68 is God is a mighty warrior who conquers all his foes. The greatest foe of humanity isn't the Assyrians or the Babylonians, the Romans. And by the way, I want to say this. All of that is easy for us to say. I can't imagine if we really knew what the levels of corruption in our government really were. But 
Praise God we have the freedom to do this. Praise God that we have the blessings that we do to do this openly where when we read a Daniel 3 and a Daniel 6, at least right now, we're not just separated chronologically, but we're just separated totally from that picture. I mean, we can't even imagine someone being told that if you bow, don't bow down to this false god, you'll be thrown in the midst of this burning, fiery furnace. It may not always be that way, but we're blessed that it has been that way all my life and all your life. And that's a reason to give thanks. So it is easy for us to say, oh, the greatest foe is not Assyria, not Babylon, not... Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like to live under slavery to those people who were oppressive and those who hated your God. I can't imagine that. But I say, I would say that as terrible as those pictures are, what that highlights is a more evil foe and a more destructive foes of sin and death. And just as God defeated the Egyptians and defeated the Ethiopians and defeated the Assyrians and Babylonians, God will defeat the greatest of all foes, sin and death. And Jesus ascends to heaven and He gives us gifts to perfect us and to prepare us for the day that we will meet Him. I mean, it it fits the overall purpose of this psalm. And in Ephesians is talked about Jesus being raised from the dead and seated at his right hand in heavenly places. For example, in Ephesians 1 verses 20 through 23, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. It's just, it, this was the ultimate Christ, death, burial, and resurrection is the ultimate vanquishing of foes. And I think part of the picture may be that as God, some of those who are captives are the ones who have surrendered their heart and their lives to Jesus. And the God who takes these captives uses these benevolently. Oh yes, he is defeating his unrepentant foes as well, but he is also taking his repentant servants and making them evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of saints. What else do you you all have to add there? Because I know I'm not expressing that in the best Way. Anything, David? Something else out of verse 29. Kings will bring gifts to thee. Reminds me of the gifts that were brought. Ah, good point. And also in Revelation 21, verse 24, listen to this. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. But the kings of the earth are pictured as bringing their glory into the new 
Jerusalem. So they are bringing gifts to the newborn king, as we see in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, and see here in Revelation 21, verse 24. <clears throat> Very good. Very good. I love verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens. Yes. Yes. He bore our sins on the cross. Yes. He bore our sins, and we didn't even talk about that when we were talking about that passage. We we compared it to Psalm uh, fifty-five twenty-two about uh, cast your burden on the Lord, and He'll care for you. But yes, the greatest of all burdens that He has borne is the burden of our sin, and He does that daily. Yes, yes. And the very next statement: the God who is our salvation. Forgiveness is is uh, costly, isn't it? Um, think think about one somebody stolen from you, and they don't have the means to pay you back, and you know that, and they ask for your forgiveness. Forgiveness is costly, isn't it? Forgiveness may involve just forgetting that debt, letting it go. We act as if God owes us forgiveness. As one writer said, God will forgive us. That is his job. If we act like that's just your responsibility, we're going to sin and it's your job to forgive us. No. If we can understand in relationship with us that forgiveness is costly, can we understand that in our relationship with God? What did God give? God gave a whole lot more than I've ever given to forgive us. And so, yes, 19 can be tied with the cross as well. Yes. Yes. And I want to tell y'all, every single time we do this, y'all bring up things that I haven't thought of. Um, First Peter 2.24. Yeah, First Peter 2.24 we could put here. So, so you all are doing well doing really well with that. You're adding a whole lot to this. Now, if I say something so kind about you, i gotta, got to make a cut. You're not, you're not helping me much in the body of the psalm, but you are doing great with my ending to the psalm. <laughs> Forgive me for that. I just had to, had to throw that out. <laughs> didn't want to, didn't want y'all to get too, too cocky. Any other questions? But, but honestly, just from the comments you all have made, it has helped me to see, as difficult as the psalm is, and a couple people in the front row thought I made too much of that last week, but as difficult as this is, this does fit in with the entire message of the Bible. And it does help us to grasp that. Okay? Anything else? 
think we do have a song here. And um, Gary, would you want to uh, lead us in prayer for hand those out? Right now? Yes, if you would. Our dear, <coughs> our dear and precious and merciful Father, we're ever so thankful again for this day that you've given to us, for the peace of the day, for our jobs, for our health, for our homes, for our spouses and loved ones, for those that we come in contact that have little or no interest or knowledge in you. We pray that we've been a light to them today, that they may see you in us and that they may gain an interest and a hope to have the things that we have and all the ways that you've blessed us. We're thankful for this group of people that have come here tonight, Father, and we pray that you be with everyone as we travel home. Continue to be patient with us as we continue to grow in your love. And we're thankful for Brother Tommy who spends so much diligent time in studying your word that he may help us to better grasp its intents and purposes for us in our lives. Help us to always have humble hearts before thee that we may continue to grow and be profitable servants and children that you can be proud to own as a father. We offer these thoughts through your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Will you take a picture of that? We sang the first part last time.